Okay, so hello everybody. Welcome to the first speaker series uh, event of this year for the INE. Today we have uh, Professor Carl Whelan of the UCD School of Economics, former Fed advisor and current advisor to, it's the European Parliament's Monetary Policy Committee, is that right? Yeah. And you also worked with the, uh, the Irish Central Bank as well. Mm -hmm. mm, so we'll we'll cover that. Um, I guess we'll get on to that. But first off, you know, just kind of, just a kind of quick background question. You st you started your economics career um, doing economics at Trinity College. What kind of got you started in economics? Was it a certain activity um, that was going on, or the kind of economic climate at the time? Um, was it the school subject? You know, what what kind of got you into it? What originally yeah. got you into economics? Well, I didn't. I didn't um, put a lot of thought into doing it. I will literally. I, I'll, I'll tell a true story as to why I picked economics as a study to do for the leaving cert. Is there was a guy that lived down the road from me called Mark Wynn, and Mark had gone on to be a professional economist. And my mother said, "Oh, Mrs. Wynn said economics was great, and that Mark loved it." as soon as he studied it. That sounds good. You're smart like Mark, you should do it. That was it. My mammy told me I should study economics. She thought it would suit me well. And <laughs> she was right. I was just very good at it. I was just, and, and I was interested in it. No, it at that, in those days, um, I mean, there's hardly ever, ever any times in any country where, where there aren't interesting economic stories. But um, Ireland was a bit of a basket case economically in the 1980s. There were a lot of economic problems. Um, and then it's kind of started to turn around, uh, even over the years, I was doing my leaving cert and starting a college and, and you could see just the first buds of Celtic tiger type recoveries, you know, um, was this when a lot of the kind of international companies started to move into Ireland a little bit. Well, the first thing is, 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 is one of the things that was, that was constraining things in the 1980s was there, there was a, a, a big fiscal problem, just like we ended up with. But, but this one was sort of a legacy of uh, 1970s policies to spend a lot of money um, and try to sort of finance their way out of the global recessions of the 70s. And so taking just, on a lot of government debt. Yeah, time. and it just didn't really work because fiscal multipliers in Ireland or in small economies are very small and it just left a legacy of a lot of debt. And so, um, and, you know, inter, inter, politically, you know, it's interesting to see that, that, that you know, it was Fianna Fáil that left the country in lots of debt. And there was a five year Fine Gael Labour coalition that spent years getting the budget deficit down. And so we're really unpopular as a result of it. And, you know, it was interesting to see history repeat yeah. itself. Um, um, so, so, so 87, 88 was sort of the crunch moment for that in terms of were we going to have a default? Were we going to keep or, or not? And, and it kind of finished with one sort of last heave of, um, of austerity, which wasn't any fun. And in fact, you can date a lot of the problems with the health service back to, to that period. Um, they, they took about 2000 hospital beds out of the public health system as part of those cuts. And they, they never went back for, for whatever reason, we spent a fortune on the health service. But, but either it seemed, you know, we, 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 we turned a corner of, of, of a type. Um, it was sort of the early days in terms of, of international companies coming in. They set up the IFSC that started to be a bit of a thing. Um, um, and, and, you know, the one thing international companies want is they want a, a sort of a stable environment. And, and when you're constantly worrying about that, you're going to default. And remember, we were during this period, it, it, was, it was a period in between when Ireland had the sterling link and when Ireland had subsequently then from 99 onwards had the euro so so we were kind of managing our own currency but not not, not doing a great job with it um there was a lot of uncertainty we devalued the currency on a number of occasions um so one of the things i teach about uh, um in some of my classes is is that those kind of pegging exchange rate things tend to be very unstable uh, and international companies want a stable kind of macroeconomic environment so, so there was a lot of instability about them, but for about 87, 88, it started to improve. And um, 
from the 90s, we ended up on a sort of a path to joining the euro. Um, and, and, and lots and lots of things went right. Although when I talk about the Irish economy, I do always, I like to go back to the late 80s uh, and show people some charts. I have a sort of a single transferable presentation about the Irish economy that gets rolled out and updated every few years. But, but I emphasize just what a basket case it was when, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, late 80s, um, the, the ratio of people employed in the country to population was about a third versus in the UK or the US, it was over a half. So basically we had a sort of missing 17% of the population that should have had a job, but didn't. Like nobody had a job, you know? Um, like I look at all our students now, like my daughter's in college and she has part-time jobs. She picks where I say, very few of my friends had, had any sort of jobs at all because, you know, like normal, like, like grown adults didn't have jobs. So, so why were students going to have jobs, you know? Yeah. Um, and all aspects of, of the economy were actually influenced by that. We had, ver we had a, 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 a very funny demographic. We had loads of young people that weren't coming into the labor force yet because we had a baby boom of, at a sort of different time than other countries. Um, um, and those who could work with very low labor force participation, so in particular, very low female labor force participation. So I think the sense of which it was still a Catholic country and a woman's place was in the home and all that nonsense. Uh, had an and, then, and then among those who were supporting themselves forward, we had a very, very high unemployment rate uh, through that period. And all three of those things went in, went, ended up going in the right direction from the late 80s onwards. Um, we, we, the unemployment rate fell. Lots of people came into the labor force, particularly women. Um, and then we had all these young people coming into the labor force in an age when there were jobs, right? So employ employment in Ireland from early, the early 1990s to, uh, uh, um, to, to the, the, the global financial crisis went from 1 million to 2 million. Wow. Dollar, wow. Which, which, which you just won't find really anywhere. And then of course it collapsed again to below 2 million. But I believe the latest numbers are 2.5 million uh, that were just published. So that's, we're at record employment levels. Um, so we've come through the whole COVID thing. So, so, so every twist and turn of that, of that was interesting. I, I, I don't do a lot, a lot of my research on the Irish economy, but, but it, it, it is fascinating that economics helps you understand so many things, in, including the country you live in. You know? So I've, I've always had an interest in it. I did, at, at university, I did economics and maths. Um, and I did the maths with it. Like that looks like a great long-term choice for like economic graduate school and being a professional mm -hmm. economist. But it was just, I was quite good at maths. And, um, and I kind of fancied a subject that if I got it right, that get full marks kind of, you know? So, yeah, so in fact, yeah, my, yeah. I know that feeling. My, my degree, the kind of thing I did is, 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 was relatively similar actually to the economics and finance degree at UCD in the sense of economics, but lots of maths and stats. Mm -hmm. so, and, and you, I guess you got to apply a lot of that maths to your economic studies. Some right? of it, some of it, like yeah. a lot of it was stuff, and you guys might feel the same. A lot, a lot of, a lot of it was stuff that, like, we didn't. Like, I'm not saying there aren't applications of functional analysis in in economics, but, 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 you know, I, I would have seen these things in graduate school, maybe. Um, you know, I'm not sure there are applications of complex analysis that I know of <laughs> in economics. There are in statistics. Um, so, so some of it was highfalutin stuff like topology and so on. A lot of theorem proving. Um, I don't know. I tend to, there's a lot of economists out there that bang the drum about, about if you're going to graduate school in economics, you should take real analysis and you should do all of this kind of stuff. And it's absolutely crucial. And having done it myself as an undergraduate, I'm a bit more skeptical of that. You know, I think if you have an interest uh, in economics and you have just a facility with maths at all, I think you can pick up the bits and pieces that you need along the way. Most of the work I most of the work I've done in my career hasn't been, you know, enormously technical. Like it does the odd paper that was that's a, a little bit harder to read than some of the others. Yeah. So is this what you found? Because um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was your your MIT PhD. So how did that come about, and was that something you found while you were while you were doing it over there? Um, yeah. So so so. Um, 
I decided to go to graduate school in the U.S. because, like, the, <laughs> there weren't any jobs here. Um, there, you know, and 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 I had done a summer internship at the ESRI, um, which was partly a um, I will blatantly admit was um, a nepotism thing because my father worked there as a sociologist. Right. Um, so we got there was not wasn't there wasn't there now is a formal internship program there wasn't there there was a guy called John Bradley and John Bradley was writing a report and he had lots of graphs to make for the report it was just one of these reports that was like it was the same kind of thing with the same standardized graphs and there was about 400 of them and he was he was damned if he was going to make the 400 graphs so I was brought in to be graph boy um <laughs> And that's what I did most of the most of the most of the summer. But 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 when the graphs were done, he kept me around for a, a month or so and got me to work on something that I, I found interesting. And I ended up doing a sort of an undergraduate thesis on it. Um, but I got to see people like actually like I never really thought about what I'd be when I grow up, you know. But I got to see people, you know, working as as economists, and it, it seemed awful easy. And uh, like they said, most of the day I have a coffee. It seemed. You know, and and doing economics and discussing interesting things. I'm like, okay, you get paid for this. So I'm like, this is this. I I could do this. You know, so so that kind of once I decided to be an economist, then basically generally need a PhD. None of the universities in Ireland were really doing PhD programs then, so that made that decision for me. Um, I still encourage students that we have that are good students that want to do a PhD. I still generally encourage them to go to the best possible programs that they can go to, um, which sometimes put me, puts me in a difficult position because we have a PhD program as well. And actually we're now very professional about it. We've got very mm. good coursework and we've got some really excellent researchers and advisors, um, but, but I can't pretend we're not, we know we're not MIT, right? So, mm. um, so, so, so. But MIT would be more considered a kind of, you know, it's an institute of technology, they'd be more focused. Um, well, you'd think on the outside, they'd be more focused on, you know, sciences maths, all that kind of stuff, but they, they seem to have a strong economics. Yeah, there's, an old, there's, an old, there's a long history as to why MIT was, was, became such a strong uh, uh, school. Um, it, it partly dates back to, um, uh, it, there's, there's a long story involving the anti-Semitism of the Harvard Economics Department, which meant that the, the, a young man called Paul Samuelson, who had just received his PhD from there, um, but they they didn't they didn't keep him on as a, a professor when they could have and a young man called Robert Solo, uh, who also could have been kept on and wasn't, um, and so they both um, they both just went down the road. It's two uh, it's two tube stops uh, uh, down the road from Harvard and settled in and proceeded to be the world's greatest economists, um, and so they were joined over time. You know Franco Modigliani. And, Peter Diamond, they were, they were joined, by, joined by so many. So particularly for macro, when I went to, 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 to MIT, that was the place to go for macro. That, um, 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 so, so, so my advisor was Olivier Bonchard, who ended, ended up being chief economist of the IMF. But you know, even looking back to what, what I was taught um, macro by Stan Fisher, who also did time as, as chief economist of the IMF. Rudy Dornbusch, who was a very famous economist, by Solo himself. I was taught by Solo in his last year of teaching. Uh, um, and uh, um, yeah, so it was, it was a great place to learn, learn, learn uh, um, economics. And, and, and I found the coursework element of it a lot of fun uh, and not so hard, partly because I think I had the mathematics background. But then I had to write a thesis um, and that wasn't fun. Really what was your thesis on? Oh, my thesis was a complete mess. Uh, <laughs> and unfortunately, due to MIT's policy of being open with information, it's publicly available. You can type it into, you could type, my, it's like, it's there, you know, I can't hide it, you know? Um, <laughs> we'll make sure to throw in a follow-up link. Yeah, so, so, so if you go and look at it, you'll actually see basically it's three different, complete, completely different topics, which in some places is just like verboten. Like, you know, some places you're, your PhD thesis is supposed to be like a book, or if it's a collection of essays, it's at least a collection of related essays. But they didn't do that uh, uh, at MIT. And my advisor, Olivier, is a man of many, many interests. So each of my three topics were things he was interested in. So he was, he was fine with it. 
So I started out, I was going to be sort of a theorist, but kind of like a macro-oriented theory guy. And I had a paper that, that was my job market paper that was, that was like, like that. It was, it was okay. It wasn't great. Um, um, the guys who hired me at the Fed, actually, they said to me like years later that when they came out, when I came out to present, they said, no, we didn't think your paper was very good, but we did have a discussion about it. And we all agreed it looked like you'd done it yourself. <laughs> like it wasn't good, but because sometimes you get people come from these great schools and they're co-authored with their advisor or they're just doing the latest great method that everybody at the school and it's not particularly, you know. So so he was right, it wasn't very good, but I did do it myself. So then I tried another sort of empirical macro paper, and that was okay. And that was more like the kind of things I ended up doing. But I still wasn't happy with that. And then I ended up writing a sort of a labor economics paper using lots of micro data, looking at, um, uh, looking at the question of, of, of how to measure the losses that people incurred when, when, when they lost their jobs in sort of like things like factory shutdowns and things like that. So there was a big literature just looking at you lost wages afterwards, but it then didn't look at, okay, well, now you're back at the start. You have to find another job. Uh, how long are you unemployed? Uh, tenure effects in terms of, when do you start sort of accumulating? So anyway, so that was my that was my thesis, and I, I ended up not really not publishing any of those papers um, in academic journals. Um, um, but that was also partly because I, I decided after a few years of not being very good at doing a thesis that that a career of not being very good at being an academic wasn't for me. So <laughs> so I, I I limited my job search to jobs where I could apply economics and do something with it. So that's how I ended up at the Fed. Well, yeah, you seem to have ended up at the Holy Grail. Um, well, you know. Yeah, no. And what I would say is that within, I, I got incredibly lucky uh, even to get the job, I think, looking back. And then within that, I got incredibly lucky to very much be at the heart of it. Um, now, this was a double-edged sword. The unit I ended up in at the time was called economic analysis. Um, and it's in the, 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 it was in the, the Fed's Division of Research and Statistics. Um, this was the unit that analyzed the U.S. non-financial economy. So we, we put together the forecast for what was happening in the economy. And we had teams that looked at different areas. So I worked on business investment. Um, and, and we worked in teams. The idea was supposed to be that you came in and you got trained in by somebody else. And then 50% of the time you were in charge. You know, somebody was always you know, holding the book of the numbers and the forecasts and memo writing. And then the idea was the other 50% of the time um, you, you could do research. At least this was what they sold it to us as, you know? But what happened is- So when you say I, to research, is this kind of your own thing? Like you can do yeah, your own, your own research thing, but, on the side? Yeah, but the, you know, they'd prefer if you did something Fed related, right? Mm. Prefer if you did mm. something useful, but but you, you, do, you get the odd character at, at, all, at all of Fed uh, uh, places that do that they have a day job that's something and then they do research that's something else and, and nobody stops them being given the time to do research is, is attractive but you know for me in the end all the research i did that i enjoyed doing was all stuff that was clearly inspired by related to the work the work that i did so the reality for me was was i ended up getting trained by a guy um who then quit after six months um and then i was the, i was the I was the senior guy in my year and I knew nothing. Like I knew, just knew, I was 26 years old. I knew nothing. Um, um, all the forecasts that turns out were largely, this guy was an interesting guy. I, I won't say his name, um, but he, he was like, oh, the research assistant does all the forecasting work. You don't have to worry about that. Research assistant's a genius. Research assistant quit. Um, so I was there, I was on my own. I had no help. I didn't know how to program. I didn't know how to get the data in. So I had to learn everything from scratch. I had to learn to do the research assistance job first. What software packages were you using? Was it still Excel oh, it was, or? Bits of Excel. It was, it was largely all proprietorial stuff that, that, that it was, the, these were all IBM mainframes. And so we used, we, we used a thing called Fame. Um, it, it was all old stuff. It was Unix systems, you know? Um, so anyway, so I, none, none of which I knew. So it was all, it was all new to me. So I spent the first couple of years there, I just barely keep my head above water, just like producing the numbers on the sheet and like ask answering questions that I got. So we used to have this terrifying thing. We used to go down to the, the, 
the board would hold a briefing every Monday morning and um, the board members would ask questions. So they'd get a briefing on the economy, US economy, on the world economy and on financial markets. And then they ask whatever questions they wanted. And it was a rule that, based, that, that if they asked a question in your area, you had to get up and answer it. And if you didn't provide an adequate answer, there had to be a memo on the desk of the division director by noon. So, you know, so you- Basically lived in, giving, your, giving your kind of researched answer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, so you lived in fear of your area coming up. When it did, you had to get up and give your explanation. And if you didn't have an explanation, you had to go back. And these dudes could come up with crazy questions sometimes, you know? There was one of them apparently liked to read like Time Magazine or something on the weekend. So people knew his questions always came from some piece he'd read in Time Magazine. Um, <clears throat> so that was, that was kind of crazy um, <clears throat> for a couple of years and I wasn't focused on research at all. Um, but over time I got drawn into various projects. And one of the things I realized that was that there were things to do with patterns in the economy and patterns in the data that I, I saw the academics didn't seem to be writing about. Or, or, or kind of understand so well. So, so, so one of my first published papers was literally the models I developed at the Fed for forecasting equipment investment during that period. And so that was literally like, that's a memo basically. So is this like the kind of capital, um, you know, kind of manufacturing stuff? Yeah, um, it's, kind it's, of equipment and for business. Yeah, so basic, basic, basically, basically we argued that, that, that you needed to model fast depreciating things different than slow depreciating things. Because it was a huge amount of investment in computer equipment, but people were turning them over every two or three years. And so we just said the modeling of this needs to be, you know, needs, needs to be different. Um, and there were various measurement issues that a lot of people didn't, um, they, had, they had moved to, um, from doing the, 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 the real GDP and all the real aggregates in the national accounts, from, from being a spares index where you use a fixed set of price weights to value things, to, to it's a Fisher chain index so there's rolling weights. So one of my first papers that, that, that I, then that I got published was just trying to explain the implications of this for doing applied work in macro. Basically it turns out you can't add up like C, we all think C plus I plus G plus X minus M that that's why. Well, it turns out you can't add up real C, real I, real G, real X minus real. That does not equal real GDP because that's not the formula. That only works if you have a Lasperis index. I know this is fascinating for the listeners, um, but, it's, but it was important. You knew, and people were making mistakes. Academics in particular were making mistakes all over the place, doing the wrong things with the data because they didn't understand. So I wrote this paper. So this is one of the things I'm sort of like famous slash notorious for in economics. That there's a few different uh, uh, things over the years that I've, I've gotten some notoriety for. But I still get people writing to me saying oh your paper about chain aggregation just saved my life you know i meet people <laughs> at conferences and they're like and it's like the world's most boring thing but people are so grateful that 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 they were able to read this thing that they thought was really scary and they read it and now they got it and now they understand um so 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 quite a lot of, of of the research that i did through those years was largely through that sort of filter of i kind of knew what the patterns were in the data and i knew how the data were constructed um and and sometimes you can get very different answers if you, if, if you don't use the data appropriately. So I did a whole series of work on, on consumption spending um, that again started from an internal discussion. There was a, um, a, a sort of a tiff between researchers at the board and researchers at the New York Fed about modeling consumption and how to do it. And, and literally the technical issues, what do you deflate consumption and income by to make them real consumption and real income? Uh, and they did it one way, and I knew, and, and, and one of my colleagues came to me and said, you know, we're getting all this crap from these guys in New York because they get different answers. And I said, well, what are they doing? What are you doing? And, and I said, okay. I said, well, you're right and they're wrong. Do you know why? He's like, no, well, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go away and write down the equations, tell you why you're right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we, got a, we, we, got, we got a few papers out of this about thinking carefully. Effectively, they were using a model that starts from a budget constraint for the household in terms of household assets today, it's household assets yesterday, plus income minus consumption. And to, to, to get a consumption function out of this that makes sense, you have to keep having identities be identities. So if you're gonna deflate things and make them real, you've got to deflate the left and right hand side by the same stuff. And that wasn't the convention in the literature. The convention in the literature was to not do that for various reasons. So, so, so even some of the papers that I wrote in that year that and actually have quite a bit of algebra, um, 
the starting point is usually something very practical, you know, and something that was coming up in policy work. So that's largely the work that I did at, 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 at the board. It was a combination of number crunchy, following the economy versus then kind of stepping back and thinking about these measurement issues and, and how, what they meant for doing research. Um, so, so it was a nice combination, but it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of pressure. It was a very pressurized environment. So is this why you kind of took a step back and kind of later, well, now you, st you still are, you, you kind of moved back into academia, academia um, to yeah, kind of well, the, head up your own research. I, I ended up coming back to Ireland and, and in fact, I, I didn't really know what to expect from the Central Bank of Ireland, a very different organization from the Fed. I thought... Well, they operate, uh, this is something I wanted to ask you now, because, you know, you know Ireland are part of the EU, we have our own Central Bank, but the... Yeah. The kind of currency is regulated by the ECB as, mm -hmm. as opposed to in the states where they have their own currency mm -hmm. um, and their own central bank. So how does, you know, what kind of role does the Irish central bank play in um, sure. yeah, um, economics? Yeah, here? I mean, look, I'll say in terms of my own experience, I kind of thought when I went in that I might be some kind of big shot, right? And I might, I might have a big role in advising people or whatever, just because at the Fed at the board of governors, it, it's a, it was quite a flat structure. So um, I worked in a role that was clearly quite high profile in terms of an, an important area that, that, that the governors were interested in. So I regularly saw the governors. I, this whole thing of that they told you that you do half the time on the forecast and half the time free, um, they left out big projects uh, <laughs> that go on for months. I got landed on a few, one in particular with Alan Greenspan that had me more or less reporting every week, going back down with calculations to him and him telling me what to do, which, you know, was fine after a couple of weeks because it was kind of a story. He was a huge figure in the world at the time. Mm. Um, um, you know, he, 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 he somehow was somewhat more important in the world then than like Jerome Powell or subsequent Fed chairman have. People believed he was this genius that was the maestros of Bob Woodward called you know so that was fine you know for stories about you know yeah, he goes to see Greenspan but after about a year of it I was like fit to be tied um so so if that if that was the kind of access I had to the people making the decisions I thought well the Central Bank of Ireland I'm gonna be a big shot I think I met the governor like three times in five years wow uh, <laughs> so I was put in a, I had published papers so their idea was you're a researcher so you do research and we have just the unit for you called research and you do research now, I said grant because I had plenty of ideas then. It wasn't like I, was, I wasn't struggling like I was when I was in graduate school. I knew loads of things. I had loads of projects. Uh, I used to co-author with my, my co-author from the Fed and we used to work together. And it was great. I'd get up in the morning and he'd have been working for five, six more hours US time on our project. And then I'd get up and I'd work and then he'd get up in the morning and I'd be like, it was great. We were working like 14 hours a day on our papers. Um, and, and I got... I got Lucky also in, the, in that the, the, one of the things they wanted the research units to do was the ECB set up joint research projects uh, with you know, all the national central banks. So they'd pick topics every so often. And they'd say, we're doing a network on this. Everybody needs to do research on it. Everybody should contribute. And the topic that, 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 that they picked when I went there was, was inflation and, 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 and empirical models of inflation. That was great. I was working on that. So I threw myself into that. So there's a whole spurt of papers on inflation dynamics and so on um, that I did during that period. Um, and this is specifically related to Ireland, not kind of Europe-wide? No, 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 not, no, quite, see, quite the opposite. You see that the, the, the international academic market has no interest in papers on inflation in Ireland, right? Um, and you have to understand your place in the world when you're trying to publish mm. in top journals. So, no, no, I wrote about inflation in Europe. I we did testing models on US data. We did, we bear, you know. Um, so that was, that was a period where I was sort of like, uh, that, like that was my ivory tower era, you know, when I could literally just do research papers. And as long as I did them and published them, they were very happy. Uh, uh, they were very happy with me. You know, if you're going to have a research unit, it's better that it's one that clearly is publishing output and that it's, you know, so that, that was the main thing they cared about was that I did the research that I published it, that I didn't disgrace them over in Frankfurt, you know, by like not 
producing the research, you know. <laughs> um, I did have disgraced them a little bit because they were very, the, the Frankfurt people were very interested in us doing like micro studies of inflation. So they wanted us to go. Sorry, can I ask who were, who were you reporting to in, in Frankfurt? So, so the way these things work would, would be they'd get some big guy in GG director research to oversee the project. And then they would sort of try to dictate this is what we should all do. Um, so one of their big ideas was that we should go and collect a lot of data on, on individual prices and see how often individual prices change. And there's a big research on that. There's a lot of evidence actually, it turns out that prices, it's a Keynesian assumption that for years nobody realized, well, is it true or false? Is it just something we imagine that prices are sticky? We actually have a lot of evidence now, prices are sticky. But that was all well established before the ZCB project. And they wanted me to do this project. And we were, I would have had to spend time at the CSO and it would have taken, I just kind of said, no, we don't, we don't have the budget for that at the Central Bank of Ireland, you know? It was as much because I didn't have, didn't have the interest. Um, so, but I, I, I used to go to Frankfurt for, to, for a couple of different committees. I think one of the things people misunderstand sometimes about, about, about the way the ECB works and the Euro system works is, I stress this to students of money and banking, is it's not just like, there's the ECB in Frankfurt and they set monetary policy. It's, it's the ECB governing council, which is all 19 members and the six members of the governing council of the, of the executive board. That's who sets policy. So, you know, everyone is expected to have an input and almost everything that the Euro system does, it uses that hub and spoke sort of structure, right? There's the old European principle of, uh, um, you know, if something can be done, at a, a decentralized level, you know, that it should be, that we only do combine things and do them in the center if, um, uh, um, you know, if we all agree that that's the best way to do it. So I used to, so, so we used to do econometric modeling of the economy. I used to go to a working group on econometric modeling. I would go to this research group, a few different research groups. So I, so I used to go to Frankfurt quite a lot. Um, and I spent quite a lot of time in the ECB building. I got to know a lot of ECB researchers, which was great because I never wanted to live in Frankfurt, but to be part of their groups and their conferences and to go over and back and to see how the ECB worked, um, I think was, was, was great. But I, I would stress that there's a lot of work goes on at the Central Bank of Ireland now that, has an in, that directly feeds into ultimately the ECB's monetary policy. There's no, there's no sense of it's just like, oh, you know, we do modeling and forecasting, but actually it's just Ireland, like who cares, you know? Um, and in fact, I always emphasize that before the Euro, in the old European monetary system, Ireland basically just had to follow German monetary policy. Right? If, if, if the man in Frankfurt said, rates are going up hundred basis points, then they were gonna go up at least hundred basis points in Ireland. Because why was that? To, was it the kind of similarity to our economies or? Uh, uncovered interest parity. Right. To keep your exchange rate, if you want to keep your exchange rate stable against the Deutschmark, then you've got to be paying the same, the same, the same return in terms of interest. Um, and if it's not, if the German Deutschmark is more attractive um, than, 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 than the Irish pound, then you weren't going to be able to keep the, the exchange rate. So there'd be, there'd, be, there'd be financial outflows as people chase the money in Germany. Um, and that, that, that works, that mechanism, when you have free movement of capital, that mechanism works pretty well in the data. So, so we didn't have, so, we, so, so, so and this, there was a lot of tensions before the Euro, particularly in the years after German unification and then up to 1992, because the, the, the German reunification was a huge shock to Germany. And it was a big macro shock. And they had to spend loads of money in East Germany. Um, um, kind of doing it up and capital investment and giving them, you know, uh, uh, much bigger benefits than they had before. All sorts of stuff was going on. And that ended up producing inflation in Germany and the Germans raised interest rates and nobody else in the European monetary system wanted this. There had been a global slowdown around the time of the, the first Gulf Iraq war. And this didn't suit anybody apart from the Germans. And this was one of the forces that drove in particular the French to say, maybe we should be doing this all together, you know? rather than just, you know, you guys jump and we say how high, you know? Um, so we never had that much control over, whereas now we have uh, uh, the central bank governor is at the table in the governing council. Um, and it could be said we have two votes right now because the chief economist is, is, is Philip Lane. 
So he's on the executive board and he uh, was formerly gover gover governor of the central bank. So, so, you know, two out of 25, I don't want to overstate how much, you know, control Ireland has over monetary policy, but we've, but we have some, um, and people at the bank work, work hard in terms of having inputs, inputs into it. Um, they also do an awful lot of regulatory work because there's a, because they are the financial supervisor for the whole financial sector as well. And the financial sector here is not just at Bank of Ireland and AIB, right? It's all the stuff in the IFSC and it's insurance and so on. So that, so, so I, I kind of, Get a bit annoyed sometimes. Like people go, "Oh, this big building. What are they all doing?" You know, they're, they're plenty. They're doing plenty. Um, and I'd imagine, you know, it's would that be kind of down to the kind of growth of the Irish economy over the last kind of ten years? The you know the fact that we have a bit more of a seat at the table now, that our kind of views are taken a bit more seriously no. at the ECB. No, it's no? just a mechanic. It's just a mechanical thing that there is at least a euro-wide consultation. Um, but we're not important in any sort of you know GDP or strategic sense. But but you know it, it, you know we can we can we, we can say you know we prefer not to raise interest rates or whatever. Right? <laughs> um, whereas the, the EMS didn't have, didn't allow for anything like that. So um, so so we don't have much control over 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 monetary policy. But we have probably more control. We have more influence than we ever did when we either had a fixed link with sterling, in which case we got UK monetary policy, or when we were trying to have a fixed link with Germany, in which case we got German monetary policy, so. Interesting. Um, so I guess I wanted to kind of shift over now to kind of more current um, kind of macroeconomic questions. Um, one of the things I was talking about with the, the kind of CEO of our SMF the other week was um, your paper on the- um, What's SMF? Yeah. The SMF, the Student Managed Fund. Oh, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they have yeah, a, C yeah. a CEO, do they know less? <laughs> that, 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 that's what they call it, yeah. Um, but um, I hope we he's well remunerated. <laughs> <laughs> All the returns go to him. Yeah. Um, but we were looking at your um, one of your blogs, or sorry, no, it was one of your papers on how, um, you know, how independent um, yeah. kind of governments and central banks um governments and central banks act um we were looking um you know I, I think it was a few months ago kind of investors uh in the uk they kind of priced in a rate hike that had been signaled by the boe and all of a sudden it didn't come yeah um i think i think also christine lagarde again a few months ago said she's been quoted as saying our job is not to monitor markets um do you know how but do you know, what, what, what was the kind of conclusion that your paper came to? I mean, look, this isn't so much an issue of, 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 of independence. These, both the Bank of England and, and, and ECB are, are, are independent, you know, from political influence. I, 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 th I think that's, that, that's fair to say. Look, politics and political uncertainties that affect the euro are always in the background somewhere. But, but, but Lagarde is not taking calls from uh, uh, um, you know, prime ministers uh, telling her what to do. Um, so, so then the question is, you know, in terms of the, the points that you raised, it's really more about communication and communication with the market. And should you do what the market expects you to do at risk of upsetting it? Um, I mean, it's been a theme in my work with the, with the European Parliament over the years, it's come up on a number of occasions, is what's the right communication strategy? Um, particularly when you end up in a period where you have a lot of, you know, you, you, your interest rates are basically at rock bottom, right? Because most of what you're doing then is communicating, well, okay, the interest rates stay rock bottom, but here's some words about how long that might be or what other jiggery-pokery we might be doing while that lasts and how long that jiggery-pokery might last. You know, it's, it's all in the communications. Um, and they know this. Um, and, 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 and we know that central banks affect the economy, not mainly through the policy rate, but through the whole sequence of 
longer term rates. I mean, I teach this in money and banking, you know, yield curve and it's, you know, the two year rate and the five year rate and the 10 year rate, all those rates are important and all those rates are important for, 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 for mortgages and for businesses and so on. So, so they all know this, they know the communication and getting out to the market and having the market, you know, think what, what, what you do uh, um, is crucially important. I think when they screw it up every so often, it's, you can be kind of childish about it and say, Markets don't tell us what to do. We'll always just do the right thing. What I don't think anybody has as a deliberate strategy, um, let's jerk the markets about, right? Let's, let's tell them we do this and then you know, we'll, we'll do something completely different. Um, at least not unless there's good reason. Um, and certainly the communications should be, I think, sophisticated enough for them to say things like, we think we're going to do a rate hike, but there are conditions under which we don't. Now, you can debate recent incidents. I think the Bank of England's uh, uh, communications have, have, were, were just handled poorly. And it's not, the, it's, it's not the first time. If you look at an example I often teach um, in some of the courses that I'm doing with this, with the central bank, um, um, is if you look back in the, the previous time we had interest rates at zero, 2013 or so, both the Bank of England and the Fed shows a communications policy where they said, we're going to raise interest rates, it's coming. And our quantitative, our criteria for this is if the unemployment rate falls below, I think six and a half percent. The unemployment rate fell below six and a half percent within about a year or so, both UK and the US, and they did nothing. They didn't raise interest rates because there was no sign of inflation. There wasn't any, um, you know, so they basically, what they were really saying was, we have some magic belief that the Phillips curve is going to work. And so we're pretty sure by six and a half percent unemployment that it'll be working and we'll do something, right? Um, so I thought that was a bad strategy at the time. And I think it undermined the credibility through to this day of if quantitative measure reaches X, we will do Y because it hasn't been done in the past. So I, so I think communication with markets is important. I think, um, I think if you're getting it wrong and markets are moaning, you're probably not doing it well. Um, and some, some of these guys are better at it than others. I, I, I think Lagarde has struggled a little bit on communications relative to, 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 to Draghi. Every so often she's said things that upset the markets and won the famous, I'm not, we're not here to close the spreads statement um, was very quickly walked back with a quick assurance that uh, we are very much here for closing the spreads. <laughs> and let's not, let's not pretend anything other. Uh, it's, hard. I, I, it's hard. I don't, if you put me in any of those positions and you make, you make me talk as much as these people do, like one hour press conferences, all these smart guys from the Wall Street Journal, the FT, whatever, all trying to get you to say the wrong thing. It's mm. difficult. You know? uh, yeah, I've heard about these kind of algorithm traders who they... You know, when they're 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 kind of trading on these big macroeconomic um, announcements, they have you know the reason why they're winning um, you know against the kind of the human proprietary traders is that they have kind of you know algorithms that can you know understand what they're saying, yeah. and all of a sudden they make a trade on that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it obviously adds a lot of volatility to the markets if they say the wrong thing. Um, so yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, to kind of see yeah, I mean, how... look, short. It's not. It's not. You know, that kind of thing where on a particular day, the wrong thing is said, and the markets crash a little bit, and you come back out and clarify, it isn't isn't that big a deal. Setting the markets up to say, we're going to raise rates, like almost certainly we're going to raise rates, and sending all your guys out to give speeches about it, and then not doing it. I think that's that's a a, a greater class uh, of error. In general, I'm sympathetic to ECB. ECB communications are made all the more difficult by the fact that it's 19 countries. And, and, and the ECB works very hard to sort of put a veil over the governing council. And I, I kind of complain about this a little bit and I'm, I'm never, I kind of go here, here and there on it. So, so on the one hand, you could say, if they were very open and it was just out in the open and the president came out and said, well, me and the German guys and the Austrian guys thought this, but the French guys and the Dutch, you know, if she did that, how, how effective would it be? Or, or, or how would people feel about the policy or the institution? 
the problem with that is that as things stand from the moment that she's gotten up and given starts to give the speech like within minutes it's it's in bloomberg that you know 10 members of the governing council were against the policy package or whatever the big september 2019 package they'd even managed to do the calculation that countries representing a majority of euro area gdp were against the package right <laughs> um so that then that should that undermines claims then that it's 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 difficult it's a difficult it's a difficult job um but i i'm not sure that they've got it that that they're getting it right now my understanding was when lagarde became president that one of the concerns that the rest of the governing council had was it was believed that draghi was very much a lead from the front kind of guy that despite all these compromises about we all have to agree and try to do things you know collectively lots of the big things like the omt speech and whatever it takes and all of that were just he would just go and do them and the other guys didn't like that so you know word on the street is not inside information this is this is widely understood was that lagarde said well i'll be more of a chairman rather than a chief but in return you guys have to stop leaking to the press um about what goes on at governing council um i she's probably she's probably kept her side of the bargain i don't think the other guys did right. uh, as much as much leaking as ever um yeah i mean um you know, we you could almost say there's been a fair bit of leaking over the u.s as well with a few governors being kind of fired from their positions for kind of trading on the information that they have with the central bank leading up to I, I just can't believe anybody like like when when most people become president um they put their money in a in a in a blind fund and that's that i can't i can't understand why what would be the need to allow governors of the federal reserve to do their own to do their own trading i understand like there might be a point where you know your kid needs to go to college and you need money or something like that that's fine if you need liquidity that's okay Need your money? That's fine. But you shouldn't. Ma- you shouldn't be. Ma- they shouldn't be managing your money. And I, I, I was actually shocked to realize that that those guys were doing proprietary trading, and potentially open to the accusation that that they were using inside information. I was really, really surprised. And even some of the names are just literally people who, like, surely they knew better. Would these have been people that you came across over your career? Yeah. Over yeah, yeah. I won't name names, but yeah. Genuine, genuinely surprised. So that's something that I don't know if it takes Congress to pass a law. It shouldn't take Congress to pass a law. Uh, Jay Powell should just, uh, I don't know where they are with this. I haven't followed it that closely, but it should just be a policy. You join the Fed, you get your assets managed in a blind trust. You come out five years later, you know, you get an annual statement or something, right? If you need the money, ask for, ask for the money back. But, but you shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing proprietary trading. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the rules are in terms of, Governing Council or ECB Governing Council members. I mean, our, our guys are often just poor academics or civil services. They don't have any money. You know? <laughs> um, I know that's, that's, that's unfortunate. I will say general in terms of communication issues, the Fed are a lot clearer. And they put in the statement, if governors disagree, it's in the statement. Um, it's never, you know, they, they don't play this game of we all agree, even when they don't. They almost uh, flesh out their... Dissents. Their documents. Yeah, dissents are registered uh, 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 regularly, and you can see from the speeches, you get more of a sense than you get from governing council speeches, um, who might be taking a certain strategic uh, uh, line at the next at the next FOMC. But you know, see, there's not the press aren't going to go. Well, the guy from Minnesota wanted lower rates, and the guy from Ohio wanted higher. Like nope, nobody associate, you know. You won't have the Ohio press and the Minnesota press going at it over, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it, so it doesn't, it doesn't have the resonance that the French disagreeing with the Germans, for example, tends to have. Okay, and so uh, we'll, we'll probably wrap this up in the next few minutes, um, if unless there's more questions in the chat. But I guess one of the more kind of current topics, um, you know, it seems to be you know taking the news. Um, almost every month when there's an announcement, um, inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, in, the, in the kind of latter months of the, um, over in the US, you know, like Jay Powell kept um, 
kept writing it off as transitory, transitory, and it kept going yeah. up. And all of a sudden, he he kind of realized, oh, well, they realized, oh, it, it might not actually be transitory. Um, and you were kind of mentioning, you know, okay, you know, using our quantitative analysis, um, once it hits this this mark, then we need to start making moves. Was that, you know, how 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 would they have gone about that? Um, kind of determining, okay, sure. I mean, I mean, look, it might not be transitory now. Yeah, Jay Powell's position is actually more a linguistic thing. If he does think it's going to be transitory, but he doesn't like the T word anymore because because <laughs> it's come people, back to haunt him a little. It's bit. been going around long enough that a lot of people think it wasn't transitory. But if you look in the dictionary, transitory just means not permanent, right? So um, it's more just the, the word started to wind people up. I mean, look, I've published a bunch of papers on inflation and how to model inflation. And this is an area where uh, macro theory doesn't work as well as we would like it to. Um, at the extremes, we can make confident predictions. You know, um, if you go- What do you mean by the extremes? So like, you know, if, 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 the center, if the central bank goes and prints off loads of money, to pay for government services, we're, we're going to get inflation. You know, um, you know, you can find all the examples of high inflation. Look at what's happening in Turkey right now, right? The central bank's not independent. The, 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 the president wants interest rates to be cut. The, the, the central bank has to do what the, you know, inflation's very high. That's not, that's not surprising. Our, our models work well enough to predict those kinds of things. But in terms of when you're in the more moderate range, uh, of inflations and within the more moderate, moderate types of institutions, I would say there's two different forces that, 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 that we emphasize. So one is, is basically the imbalance between supply and demand, right? So, you know, in your standard sort of Phillips curve, that's usually somewhat that proxied just with like an unemployment rate or something like that. So unemployment rate's low, then the economy is booming. So perhaps that means demand is outstripping supply, right? Now, I think one of the things we've, we've learned over time is you can't use one statistic to summarize something as complex as the imbalance in the aggregate economy between supply and demand. Um, but the other element that tends to be emphasized, this is more will the wisp, is this idea of inflation expectations mattering and perhaps being self-fulfilling. You know, that in a so so in the booming economy that we had before COVID, when unemployment rates are very low people would say, well, what, what, why didn't inflation take off? And the answer was usually, well, because people didn't expect it to, and inflation expectations were well anchored. So now there's this debate about, well, now that we've clearly had enough of a demand-supply imbalance that inflation is starting to take off, is it transitory? Well, if people expect the 5% to continue, we, we've seen in the past, we've seen economies, we've seen advanced economies have five, six, seven, eight, 10% inflation for year after year after year. And it's partly because it just sets in and becomes endemic, right? Um, and so everybody expects to ha have to get at least a 5% wage increase and everything. I mean, we don't, an economy can work where everything's indexed by 5%. And people's notion of normal is prices go 5%, wages go 5%. That can work, you know? Like ultimately, you know, like monetary neutrality and all that, right? Um, there's some costs, people would probably prefer to live in a zero inflation economy than 5% inflation, but, but the costs aren't, aren't that major. Um, so, so I, but, I, but I think that's the, that's the, the, the concern is that you, you get this sort of supply demand imbalance. And I, I think what some people are saying, and my, my old colleague from the Fed, Jeremy Rudd wrote a paper about this recently that got a lot of attention, um, which is, you know, have economists been wrong and focusing on this expectations thing? But I think what he was really saying was, for a lot of the time when it's low, the public, what the public thinks about inflation doesn't matter. It, you know, it's under control. Nobody's factoring into their decision making. But at some point, it becomes sort of salient. Right? Now, I notice if you turn on the, uh, um, I mainly don't listen to Irish news radio in the car. I mainly listen to podcasts and things. But but last week I turned it on and I said. And before it came on, I turned on. I said, "Morning Ireland." I said, "I bet it's inflation." I didn't know. I didn't know, I didn't know what. <laughs> I just. I said, "I bet they're doing a piece. And sure enough, they had that guy. You know, the really serious, like Kean McCormack, and goes and interviews people about very bad things. You know, and lots of people were saying about how inflation was very, very bad. And I'm like, "We've hit salience, right?" So, th I think that's a concern of the ECB. 
is that we get to the point where everybody says, you know, and particularly if you've lost enough money in, your, in terms of your real wages and the cost of living that you feel now like I'm owed 5% now because of what's happened over the past year. You know, perhaps then you're on the slippery slope to an extended period uh, of high inflation. And the ECB's primary objective, as we all know, is 2% price stability as defined by 2% inflation. So, so is that the kind to... of trigger point for this kind of expectation that once it goes above 2%, people start to kind of, you know, price it into their own, into their own price of suppliers? Yeah, I think that's what people are concerned about. So I'll give you a classic on the one hand, and on the, on the other hand, uh, economist answer to, 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 to finish it off. On the one hand, um, you can say, yeah, there's this great concern about expectations are going to take off. Um, and, and many at ECB are concerned about this, and certainly the Fed are concerned about it. Um, but to, to counter that, I would say there is no great sign of that yet, because we do surveys asking people, the European Commission asks people, and they survey professional forecasters, and there's various people out. There isn't any real sign of that yet. People seem maybe they just believe central banks when central banks tell them it's going to be transitory. There isn't really yet evidence the public thinks we're in for an extended period of high inflation. And then the other thing I'd say is a lot of the supply demand imbalances that came out of COVID that were driving prices up, you know, can be temporary. So for instance, the fiscal stimulus in the US clearly had a big effect, but it's done now. There's no more stimulus checks this year. The very fact that there's not versus there were big stimulus checks last year means there's a, there's a swing in terms of fiscal. Uh, in terms it's of kind fiscal. of an unloading of kind of savings from, the, from that yeah. stimulus. You know, a lot of these supply restrictions that came from factories being closed during COVID and so on that haven't quite been worked out yet, you know, will, will, will be dealt with. Some very slowly, like for instance, the shipping, you know, it takes three years from ordering a ship, a container ship to it actually like leaving the dock. And with the a global shipping shortage, that's not going to go away that quickly. But, um, but, 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 but there are other things that will work themselves out. So, so my sense of it is that the underlying imbalance between aggregate demand and aggregate supply will ease uh, and it will partly ease coming from monetary tightening the fed is going to tighten the bank of england is going to tighten the ecb the ecb might be paddy last here um, um, because inflation is, is lower than it is in, in the us and i think they're less concerned about supply demand imbalances and, and, and have a sense that you know they know that prior to COVID, the european economy generated very little inflation and I think they probably have concerns that if you tighten too quick, you can end up putting the economy into recession and then they're in the same boat they were in before, failing to reach their 2% target. And everybody blames the ECB as the bad guy. So, 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 so it's difficult, but I would still, for now, be reasonably optimistic that we're not about to see this long, persistent burst in inflation. But from a policymaker perspective, the transitory thing, it, it, it can't keep, if we're here in April, May, and um, inflation in Europe, in, in the Euro area is running at 6%, like they'll have to do it at a more accelerated rate. There's a, there's a limit to which you can just sit back saying we're, we're relaxed. And so I think that's the tension within the council right now is people who are broadly a bit more relaxed about it, like me, versus people who just like, like they can't go home to their country and say, I voted to keep monetary policy at zero rates, you know? So we will see it. The, 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 the discount rate, the negative discount rate that's applied to bank reserves is going to get raised, I think, in the next couple of months. And that is the policy rate right now. People don't realize that. Um, so there's no mortgages linked to it. So variable rate mortgages won't go up, but it will start to make certain assets, uh, uh, rates of return and various things go up. Um, but yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky time. A question about the Fed's balance sheet. I, I, I think the Fed's balance sheet and its effect are all a bit overhyped, you know, in the sense that if you look at the studies on QE, you'll see QE has had an impact on long-term yields, but, but, but modest impacts, you know, you know, modest impacts. And we've already seen, the Fed already had a period of QT, right, quantitative tightening, where they reduced the balance sheet. It was, it was all pretty orderly. Um, it didn't trigger any great financial crisis. Um, so, um, so I think it should be pretty easy for the Fed as part of its tightening package to go back to 
um, tightening. Now, the last time when they would use the balance sheet, they let it run sort of naturally. So the bonds would mature and they would take the payment on maturity and then they would use that to pull reserves from the system and shrink the balance sheet. Um, there is a question this time as whether they need to be more active, in which case they need to get out there and sell, sell them into the market. Um, um, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that market demand for US treasuries is in any way collapsed or it's, it's, these, these are still very easy things to sell. Um, and and it, if the Fed sales were to be disrupted to the treasury market, they would stop. It's very important that there be a smoothly functioning uh, uh, treasury market. So I, I'm, I'm quite relaxed. Um, um, and in general, I'm not one of these people that believes a big Fed balance sheet means inflation or any of this, any, any of this kind of stuff. Um, um, you know, the people that said QE was going to cause inflation have been like, I think there's the odd character that says, oh, since 2008, I've been saying we get inflation. And now we are 14 years later and it's happened. Hooray, I'm right. Um, but, but they don't have any credibility. Um, and I think it's a matter of, of, it's been fascinating that if you told a lot of people a few years ago that the Fed would buy $8 trillion, print off $8 trillion of money to buy securities, and it would take 14 years to generate inflation, people, people would have been surprised. Um, so, so I'm quite relaxed about the balance sheet and, 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 and reducing the size of it. Great. Well, unless there's any more questions, Carl, I really want to thank you for your time um, to come talk to us today. Um, this has definitely been one of the most interesting talks we've had um, this year. So um, thank you. Thank you again so much for, for no coming worries, on Emmett. today. Thanks, guys. Um, guys, everyone on the call, thanks so much for turning up. And um, we, we'll, we'll make sure to post this on our, on our YouTube channel um, and also onto our podcast channel. So if you want to listen back to any of the topics, um, we'll make sure to post it up there in the next uh, week or so. Um, so everybody, take care. Thanks for coming. See you guys. Have a good evening.